0: Hey everyone, this is Ferdinand Gutson reporting to you from not-so-sunny Amsterdam in what feels like a never-ending lockdown. I really hope that you're all dealing with the last stretches of this pandemic well. I really hope that we are slowly going to get out of these lockdowns and back into normal life. In the meantime, I am excited to share with you the third episode of my Candid Growth Chat series. In this episode, I had the chance to speak to two of Amsterdam's finest, two of the best marketers I know, Hugo Pereira, and Jolene van Rieken. Hugo is the chief growth officer at EVBox. EVBox is one of the big pioneering companies here in the Netherlands uh, when it comes to sustainable mobility, electric charging. And Jolene is the marketing director at Impraise. And Impraise is a people enablement platform where their mantra is simple yet effective, grow your people, grow your business. And both of these marketers have a proven track record and a lot of success with building and nurturing teams. And as marketing leaders, a fundamental part of their job is not only developing big ideas, but actually implementing them, making them work. And when I speak to marketers in any kind of capacity, really, I often get the, the question of, you know, what do I do if somebody doesn't agree with the ideas we have? How do we get buy-in from stakeholders, be that managers, be that investors, be that colleagues or other, other figures in other departments? I really think that uh, a big part of success is being able to get buy-in on your ideas. So that's been one of the main topics that we tackled within this, uh, within this discussion. And we really explored a number of you know, key factors when it comes to not only developing ideas, but really getting buy-in and turning them into reality. And uh, it was a great pleasure to speak to both of these marketers. It's also the first episode we have with two speakers. So hopefully you enjoy it. And as always, uh, feedback is more than welcome. Today, I have uh, the power of two guests. I have uh, Jolien van Rieken. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And uh, Hugo Pereira. Uh, Hugo is uh, the chief growth officer at EVBox. And um Interestingly enough, he's uh, in a similar field uh, to me, where you kind of combine the world of software and hardware, which uh, brings a lot of joys and a lot of frustrations all at the same time. Uh, Jolien is the Director of Marketing at ImPraise, which is in the HR tech space, if I am not mistaken. And uh, yeah, thanks uh, to both of you for joining. Thank you. Happy to be here. Awesome. And today, what we're going to be talking about is... Stakeholder management, one of the most important things, because over the last years, I've met a lot of great marketers, a lot of marketers who are better at a lot of things than I am. And uh, I think one of the things that really differentiates those who become uh, leaders and managers earlier rather than later in their careers it often falls back to stakeholder management. How do you get buy-in on your ideas? How do you get buy-in from your manager? How do you get buy-in from your team if you are a manager? How do you get buy-in from other stakeholders across the company? If you're in a company that's funded, how do you get buy-in from investors? How do you best present ideas? It's one of the biggest challenges. And I think it's, uh, it's one of the things that really can make a difference in your career if you know how to, how to get it right. So um, yeah, I think a good way to start is... Maybe both of you have, or at least one of you has a story that related to stakeholder management that, uh, can kind of, uh, that some, of the, some of the viewers might be able to relate to. Yeah, I,
1: I, I can get started. I'm sure Jolene will have her own, <laughs> her own story as well. So the one that comes to my mind very quickly on stakeholder management, and it was actually at TV Box at the beginning of the TV Box career. So I already had quite some experience on family on stakeholders and still you can be always surprised by things that you didn't expect. Which was the company was was was, was 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 just ten people, fifteen people, never had like done any advertisement strategy so far because the industry was growing and was, you know, mostly growing through resellers and distribution in the Netherlands. So when I joined in to kick off the marketing activities, of course one of the things you want to see is like, okay, let me just try out and see. I see that the search is not very utilized, you know, SEO can be improved, but you also see that there's almost no one doing ads on the on the ecosystem which is almost impossible to find five years ago it's like how oh, this is possible that like, there is an industry and there's no paid ads on google it's like i will have the first ads of everything so i was like okay i'm gonna start small because there's small budgets etc i'm just gonna play with uh, with something which was 200 euros i'll just put 200 euros just for a week or two weeks and see what happens so i put it forward and i do prepaid to go to invoice and it sends out and the founder rejects the 200 euros and I was mind-boggling. How can you reject 200 euros? I don't even know where to get started. So I go to him and I'm like, and I just say, "Well, sorry, I think there was a mistake. I you rejected the 200 euros for advertising. I think two weeks ago we tried it. We're going to start experiments." Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. I know that. Yeah, but I don't believe in Google Ads. And then, and then you have this moment of realization that's like, "What do you mean you don't believe in Google Ads?" It's like, "No, I never click on them." And then I and then started to realize, okay, this is going to be an interesting conversation. It's not going to, just, not just going, to, going to be about why this can benefit the company. I have to get the person out of the personal preference because that's what happens normally in stakeholder management. And you, you, you try to personalize to you, I don't believe, hence why should we do it? So then it, it took quite some weeks. And then I tried to one, realize, I, I think the, three, the things that immediately came to my mind that helped me in, in, in the case. And, and just FYI, it took me two weeks to convince him about just a goddamn 200 euros (laughs) i think was to cost me more time and patience to to convince him that i just do it on my own money almost like just to just to prove him wrong kind of thing but what i realized at the moment was one that a lot of the stakeholder management uh, that happens is that the tendency to personalize to the experience or to my department is the first tendency and and then it becomes immediately a, a lost battle because you're going to try to confront them and be like, well, but just because you don't believe doesn't mean it doesn't happen because, hey, look at the statistics. There's billions of euros on advertisement every year. They work. He's not going to pull it off. So, uh, so, so, then, so then you have to go through a different experience. So what I did was, okay, if I have to step up in a shoe of the, someone else, which is one of the things that is hard to do, which is the interlocks, which is how can I make him understand the power of advertisement? So I asked him, what are the top five brands that you admire the most in the world um, and why? So we had this conversation on it and, that, and he didn't fully understood. So afterwards, I picked up on those ones. I went on each of these industries that they were tapping into. And those five brands, some of them I didn't even know, I pulled up what they are looking for and I showed him the five different pages of all the keywords that they were looking at. And I said, look, all your brands continuously are always on the first or second advertisement page of the words that they're looking for. It's not because they are not known, it's because they want to also ensure that whoever is searching for them is aware of what the value that they are contributing to. So, you know, you might not believe on advertisement, but the chances are that if you admire these brands and if you believe they are the things that you really empower for, then you give me the trust to at least explore it. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'll not bring it up again. And if it works out, I'll show you the results behind it. So I. Then it comes to the second part, which is the scope of it. A lot of the stakeholder management, you try to get a scope too large at the beginning. I need to have all of these approved. I need to have this whole strategy approved. It might be overwhelming by someone that might not be in your same category, on your same level of expertise or understanding. So I always try to understand that, what is the scope that matters to the person I'm talking to? For my CEO, when I was trying to sell, you know, like the advertisement, he comes from a marketing background. So he was like, "Hey, I yeah, do advertisement. Like, don't bother me. Because he understands. He comes from that background. The founder is an engineer. He doesn't understand that background. He doesn't see the value of it. So, so yeah, so I, I, for me, it came around that, that part of the story, which is I was able to approve. I was able to build the scope. Of course, there was not, no one doing artwork, so it was easy to justify the rate of increase of revenue that can come out of it and a new partner. So he afterwards reluctantly allowed me to increase the ad step by step and understand the value of it. And it, a year later, he recognized that, you know what? I really, you know, Google Ads actually might work, and even after a year, he said might work. He didn't give it away. So yeah, I, I found that twa- the part: what is what is it in, in it for the person that you are trying to to manage yourself to? What is the scope that you are actually talking about? And uh, yeah, you know, what is the you know? Are you are you actually stepping into the toes of? Are like, you putting yourself on the shoes of someone else and trying to see what is the underlying issue that he's having with? It? So yeah, these were a couple of things that came to my mind. But it was a story that I got shocked on uh, on you know something so simple, um, and yet was it, it set up the foundation for how I manage the stakeholders at TV Box from here there onwards. So I, I, I changed completely the way I operated compared to before. Nice one,
0: nice one, Jolene.
2: Yeah, I actually very much recognize this, especially like I think we've all marketeers have to prove their worth, and I think especially if you don't have a marketeer as an CEO. I always work with mostly sales CEO. They really don't understand the value of content because they can't see directly what kind of money it brings in. I, I had a similar experience, right? I wanted to hire content writers. Like, why? Why do we need a content writer? Why do we need to talk about content? We can just run uh, ads. Uh, oh, yeah. And brands. Yeah, indeed. Brands is the same. Yeah. What is brand? Why do you need a brand? Why do you need to do SEO? Why do you need anything to stimulate your organic traffic? They don't really care about it and they don't see it so I really like the approach of Hugo. What I normally do is I, I plan the little seed. So I start making people part of the solution or that they think that they're part of the solution. That's mostly what really helps for me. So just coming with them with a problem and talking them through it and then just making them part of the solution before later on I come actually with the plan. So then mostly I've already have yeah, bought them in uh, and made them part of the solution. And then it's way easier to... Get the budget.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's uh, super important. I kind of the, the the secret is just if you understand what the other person's goals are, if you really understand what their goals are, and how you can frame what you're trying to do within their priorities, that's not always easy, but that's uh, that's usually the way forward. That's always what I find what are the kind of departments now I'm not going to ask specifically for your companies cause they may be watching and they might hunt you down uh, on the weekend. But uh, what are, what, what have been the departments traditionally, generally be it from your own or others experiences that you've observed that you found are the hardest to win over on your ideas?
2: Sales and product for me. And they, and then, and they would agree with me. So they probably, some of them might be even watching and they would agree with me because it's such an uh, on the other part of the spectrum. So they can talk a complete different language. And I think in the past, we've had quite some disconnect with that because one was talking feature, other was talking value. And to bring that together is actually always very hard. But the successful companies who do that right, they can bring value and feature together. And I think that's a lot of times where we have a disconnect, especially, you know, talking to our CTO. I really have to convince him of marketing efforts and why we do marketing. And that, especially with SaaS, it's a real journey. It's not just, here's my ads, you get a discount, buy my thing. It's a real, hey, you have a problem. Do you agree with the problem? Yes, I have a problem. Then bring them to a solution. Oh, this is an interesting solution and you need to gain trust. And once you have trust, then you might get them across the line uh, for a demo or some kind of interaction. But it's so, yeah, for me, product is always a hard thing. And sales more because it's more the tension, right? Who's responsible for the part of the revenue? And um, there's always like, yeah, we don't get enough MQLs. And the other one's like, yeah, you don't do anything with my MQL. So,
1: yeah, for me, those two te- themes are actually
2: the biggest struggle always.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I, I can recognize with, with the product, mostly on the SaaS world, yeah, that I can really recognize that, that, that component of, of the buy in, especially on. On the buy-in in terms of the way you want to communicate a feature or a product compared to how, uh, from a marketing point of view and tone of voice, and then you have these back and forwards where, you know, the engineering team or the product team wants to be very explicit and non-user friendly because otherwise they'll not understand what to do. So you have this back and forth, so I understand that part of, of the buy-in, not specifically not if TV box, but I always had some extra struggles with finance when there are tough times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, yeah. Well, not and legal. when things when, when, yeah yeah and legal, uh-huh. yeah. When things are going well, normally those departments are very are very easy to work with. But when things get tough, then uh, then yeah, then I find finance and security um, like some hard ones to win over. because yeah. the tendency is of course either increase security, uh, increase thresholds and processes, and uh, increase barriers to spending, and then and uh, then it becomes a harder conversation. Mm. Which, uh, which, uh, yeah, which you win sometimes and you lose sometimes. Uh, I found that with finance, the way that it worked well over the last years, or, or that I remember a lot, is is b- based on the, on on the right compromise. So I always found that there is a level of compromise, and we always are able to find in between. I realize that if I really try to push it. I, I have to understand that they are also managing an organization and cash flow. You know, cash flow is king. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's also like. As marketers it's also a responsibility to think and uh, that you know, just because you have budget doesn't mean you have money. And I think that's, uh, and I think that's something that many many forgets, that you know, just because you have budget doesn't mean you have money. And that was a CFO that told me that once. And that was a twist on my mind, because before I was like, I agree on this budget, you gave me this budget. And then he told me, just because there's budget doesn't mean there's money. And then I was like, okay, fair enough. So now let me know, which money do you have? That's a good one. Which money do we have? And then send back to me. And then, and then it's my job to think about, okay, if this is the reality of things, then uh, let's talk next quarter and let me know if the budget got better again. So that, that was a good learning with finance. That helped me a lot. Uh, and yeah, with, with sales, yeah, I echo what you said, Jolene. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> you plus feature equals successful companies. Yeah, nice. I, yeah, it's, uh, yeah
2: I think the, a real good company can bring value to feature so a lot of the times if you don't have a good company it's like this is what we do here's our feature but there's a story in between so if you can really sell value then you can uh, actually be a very successful company because you don't just sell the feature you sell the value Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of companies struggle between moving from value to feature
0: yeah absolutely i think that's a i think that's a really good way to look at it also for internal stakeholder management right because So with sales, I totally understand that a lot of companies clash. I've had the luck of, I think, uh, so the head of sales at Recruity is a guy called Lodovik, And uh, he wants, uh, he always used to use this, uh, one of the best people to do interviews together with. And he always asked this question, are you a hunter builder or an analyst? And I think if you're kind of a hunter mentality, you get along with sales. I've always been a hunter. You know, I started in sales. Uh, actually, I started marketing, did a bit of sales, went back into marketing, and uh, I've always been best friends with the with the with the heads of sales, and the directors of sales. Same at 3D Hub, so I've always been lucky there. But I think uh, one thing you can always do is marketing should be the bridge between product and sales. I think if you manage to do that well, then I think both departments start mm-hmm. seeing the value. Um, mm-hmm. But that's super nice. Uh, so Hugo, if uh, if the marketing it's career. Uh, doesn't seem like doesn't seem like I your did, jam anymore.
1: You I think I, my 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 CFO will be so proud. He will be like, ah, oh, you learned so much. That's how you're gonna be telling me. That's what that's how you're gonna go. This is um, how you
0: end up with famous quotes with the wrong person attributed to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Uh, what, what, one of the thing, one of the things I find I found that generally and this is, this is just also to create a bit of like of conversation and conflict. I did find. And maybe because I don't come from, a, from the marketing background, when I started tapping into marketing, I did found a lot of the marketeers very selfish on their view of marketing, on their bubble. Yeah? And, and I, I can say for marketing, probably be the same for sales, the same for product, or the same for finance. I always found hard to understand why people stick to their department and to their job description, especially as the company grows. And that was one of the things that always annoyed me a bit, which is the an inability to see the interlocks when you're talking about stakeholder management. is It's almost like when a company is small, of course, you can push a lot of your projects and you kind of can manage a lot of things within your own stakeholders, you know, without st- setting out. But as many of you are here that your companies grows, you, you are all interlocked. You cannot push things without the help of each other. And it still feels that it's like, you know, even today, even like while managing teams, I still feel that sometimes I fall myself on a trap of thinking like, oh, I really want this to be pushed for the marketing department. So I'm going to pull all the triggers without considering what might affect on the other ones or not. And, you know, sometimes I feel that there is this kind of like selfish view about shareholders. What do I have to get a buy-in to move this project so that I can make these people, these people and these stakeholder happy and then leave the other ones? I found sometimes hard to step out of this. Comfort I, of I, I,
2: I agree with you. I, I do think. It kinda of is logical when you see a company scaling, right? So you start as a startup where everybody's a generalist and everybody can do a lot of things and everybody sees more the bigger the hustlers, the bigger perspective. And then you go into a scaling phase where you just need to hire specialists because then generalists won't cut it anymore. And then you get those people who are stuck in that little bubble and do their thing and don't think about the bigger picture. I think there a lot of times, especially with scaling, you see that stakeholder management uh, is even more important because you, mm-hmm. you don't have the generalists.
0: Yeah. One question we had a lot um, coming, going into this is if you're a first time growth manager, growth lead, head of growth, whatever the hell you want to call it, in a company that doesn't have a growth or growth marketing setup yet, and you're struggling to kind of use the word evangelize the idea of growth internally. What do you do? Because uh, the tough question, I get this all the time, the tough question is, if, if you've tried everything and you really can't get them on board, go to a different company. But uh, barring that, what, what can you do when, when you're starting out in a company and you need to kind of convince them? Like, how do you market marketing to other people within the company?
2: What I'm normally, I, I, the, what I like about growth marketing or marketing in that regard, more the technical part of marketing is that you can run experiments and you can show growth. So I, I always, especially when I started jobs, I rather always ask for forgiveness than for permission. So I just did it. I did my experiments and I showed growth. And then I got a buy-in. So uh, sometimes I got big clashes. But it did in the end got me where I wanted to go. Uh, because, yeah, indeed, sometimes you can talk and talk and talk and talk and try to get money or try to get a thing, but you won't get it. So what I like about this form of marketing is you can just go get Google optimized, run a B-test on different pages, show it, and then actually get money to uh, scale it up. So that's what I I, I would
1: just start. Just do it. Well, yeah, when you said that, for forgiveness (laughs) rather than permission, I love that also as well. I would say that sometimes you might want to do it, and this is a bit tricky. Sometimes you have to do it without them knowing.
2: Yeah, just do it. they have no idea right they don't understand a lot of times
1: sometimes yeah exactly yeah yeah Yeah,
2: i know it goes to a lot of companies and i talk to them and like even bigger SaaS companies they don't have a funnel so how are you going to prove value as a growth marketer if they don't even have an understanding of their own funnel so then you can just start yeah we need to get a funnel we need a great piece of personas and we need to start testing no just start testing because if they've never tested before, they have a very crappy website of a bounce rate of eighty percent. You're gonna have a better bounce rate, and you're gonna have an increase of conversion.
1: Yeah. It's just yeah, it actually reminds me also as well when I, when I joined, I, I had joined, and, and there was already a website launch, when I joined EV Box, and they had built this whole configurator where you could pick and choose to the detail, you know, like the charging station for your electric car, the color, the if it's two connectors, how much power output? Even I was like, well, if I had to go through this, I have to study online to understand what I'm going to need or something. So, and at the end of all that model, which has to introduce everything, it shows you the price. And, and I was like, well, do people even understand what they are paying for? And so I had this conversation for a month or two months, actually, that the configurator was out. But it took so long for the, the engineer the agency, the founder was so proud of it and uh, the product manager was so proud of it it took them like six months to think about the whole configurator and then it's it's on the website and i was like wow that's my responsibility so i should check if it's really working or not and it was actually it was cutting the leads by half but they're like no 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 we just have to keep optimizing the configurator and i wanted to try something different and get the buy-in to try something completely new even if it's just a you know HubSpot form that, which feels, <laughs> if it works better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and then I got to the point, exactly as, as you were saying, I was like, you know what, how many times do they visit the websites per week? Probably not that many. So I just, you know, I just, like, I was like, okay, I'm not going to change the configurator. I'm just going to hide the price in the end. That's it. Just tell the developers, hide the price. And then we doubled. Leads doubled. And then, and after a week, you know, I went back to the, everyone and I said... Now that you see the results, do you want me to put, again, back the price and lose customers? Or what are you going to do about this? And it's like, well, oh, okay, maybe maybe do small variations. And then, yeah, and then you get small buy-in, small buy-in, small buy-in, small buy-in. But I understand the frustration sometimes, yeah, that you just get stuck as a growth marketeer. And, uh, and it might work also the opposite way. You might take a bet that you really believe is going to work out. The experiment goes worse and you get getting more troubles. And, yeah, you have to evaluate the risk and, uh, yeah the leap and it's a, it's a bit of a tough situation to be in um i do find that sometimes you know it's almost like if you tell your boss your boss is well, let me find a better a better a better thing it's almost like if someone very close to you tells you like you know what you should swim more often and you're like nah, no nah, it's okay and then you find some i don't know leader that you admire and say you know what you should swim more often and you are like you know what you're right i should swim more often so i found that sometimes the stakeholder management is the same thing you know, like not with the CEO, but my previous CEO, he, he didn't know anything about Agile. I said, we have to work with the development teams in Agile ways. Like, yeah, I don't know much about that. No, let's continue on Kanban and traditional school. And I knew that one of his, you know, I knew that I, we had a common connection and the, the, my common connection on, on his level. So I asked my common connection, do you believe in Agile and etc.? Yeah, my whole team is moving Agile. Could you have a conversation with Dieter uh, <laughs> Just, you know, if you have a chance on that... And then, you know, like some days, weeks later, he comes to me and says, you know what? I've heard that it's a job thing which brings great results. I'm like, yeah, I've <laughs> heard wonders about it. <laughs> so this sometimes works. it's about the peer it's value. Like a, it's
2: like a sales of, technique, right? Like the tool that yeah. you have that you, that, oh, it's so funny. Sometimes you, you, you know, team, when yeah. they open your email and just send the email back, oh, yeah,
1: oh, great. So, sometimes the code of management is about the peer value. It's like, well, I am here, but if I hear from my peer, I listen with different uh, weights, then I listen from some someone. So, on a, as a growth marketeer, maybe you have to play behind the scenes, and yeah, it feels a bit a bit strange. But sometimes you have to get out of the box. To I think to
0: this. Uh, I think this really boils down to one th- really important thing: in stakeholder management. Is you got to you got to leave your ego at the door, right? And that's more difficult for some of us than others. Um, but uh, it's a super <laughs> important part uh, because I, I don't know how many times I've si- I've I've been in a company and I suggest something and they're like, nah. Uh, uh. And then two months later, oh, we just talked to the investors. They had an amazing idea. This is amazing. We should do this. And be like, ah, I did suggest this ages ago. But I, uh, I used to do that as well. If I knew that the CEO was really into a company or really like following this one influencer, I just like find. I just Google for days until I found content by that person saying the thing I wanted to say. And just be like, have you seen this? Check it out. uh, what would you do in a company that's more on the enterprise side, where at the end of the day, they don't really look at the short-term soft metrics, they really care about customers. And if you have very long sales cycles or very long deal cycles, what do you do then? How can you prove it?
2: Enterprise and growth. Mm, I tried to do it for Heineken. was very hard, to be very honest, because it took me three months to get my experiment approved. Um, so if you really want to do growth at an enterprise, I don't know <laughs> if that's the most fulfilling job you will ever get. However, if you are also a SaaS that works with more enterprise customers where sales cycles are long, I think it's very, then a funnel is very important because I think a lot of people realize that, especially also just marketeers don't know that yet, especially if you're just starting, that if you do a top funnel campaign, you cannot measure that with a conversion. Because you're creating awareness, you're creating a catalyzer, but you're not showing a solution yet. So you cannot measure a top funnel campaign with a conversion. I think that's a big part where things go wrong. People do experiments. Yeah, but my conversion rate didn't go up. No, because that was not the goal of this experiment. So I think if you can show and create a funnel and show actually your CEO or, or, or other stakeholders that... You go from this stage to that stage to that stage. And then you actually can show leading indicators because then you can say, okay, here we're going up. Here we're not going up. Okay, we need to focus on this part now and see if we can increase the conversion here. And in the end, of course, you will get to better deals. But it's not just if we do one thing here, the revenue goes up. It will be great if that will be the case, right? But just, and especially in SaaS, especially with longer deal cycles, it's a funnel. And you need to show the funnel. You need to show the metrics per funnel stage.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And you could do growth modeling. I mean, even if you don't, even if you have early stage metrics, you can correlate them with, uh, if you have past data, you can correlate that with uh, future growth. Uh, nice. Uh, Hugo, we have a question for you. In hindsight, would you still fight for the $200 or would you just pay it yourself and why? By the way, I do this as well. I, 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 when I really want something, I'll say, if it fails, take it out of my paycheck. They never do it. So they never, they never call the bluff.
1: Yeah, I, 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 that is one that is always good to have uh, behind behind the scenes. Rarely happens that they that they say okay, then you pay out of your paycheck, even because there will be so many HR situations with it. But uh, um, it happened already situations where I did pay for certain things just because I, I really wanted to test them out. Um, I think my threshold was more like if it's something that I think it's going to be sequential and uh, you know it's going to have a longevity, I probably do not want to pay myself. Because I really want to build up the value of, of it, so something like such as an advertising strategy or a, or a, or a search engine advertisement strategy, something that'm not I cannot experiment on that and then and then just let go you know so it's the risk of like paying two hundred dollars and if if somehow it doesn't work, then I enter on a situation where I might not even have an advertising strategy at all. So if it's like a longevity kind of thing that I really don't want to bet on, I, I really find other ways around. So probably I'll have gone around to escalate and have a conversation with the CEO what I'll have tried to reduce the value, say, okay, if not 200, 100. And then I'll even try to have like, I don't know, one of those Google um, donations, not donations, uh, like they give some money 30. for free. Uh, yeah, like a real, if I threw a referral fee, find a friend at Google that could give me like some, some money to play with just to try it out. Honey have, yeah, exactly. I'll just try to find different ways around. If it will be a short experiment, something like I want to check out if people react better to, which happened to me, I, I wanted to try to justify how a complex system works. I was like, okay, we should do this through, do this through a video. There were doubts on it. I was like, you know what, I'm not going to wait and wait and wait for a budget, et cetera. It seems that on fever, there is a $50 guy that can do a video. I'm just going to do it and present internally and see if people feel that this can help explain better. Then I'll just use my own money and that's it. So I have different thresholds, but yeah, I think in almost every company, sometimes I did experiments and I just push with my own money. Yeah,
2: especially for tools. That's what I have. a Yeah. yeah. I have, a lot of times, I invest my own money in the tools, and then yeah, took the value the later and got the money back.
1: Yeah, happened the same. Uh, even now, even now, recently, I'm 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 using Miro collaborative tool, but I really want to see if it's if it's you know if it fits for small projects. So I'm just doing it on my own and uh, see if it really improves collaboration and, and productivity from remote work. And if I feel like okay, this really helps out, then I'll I'll see if it, I increase the teams and etc.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One thing also, I mean, a lot of people viewing might not be in the situation to make this decision now, but in the future, these are the things you should look at when you're, when you're, when you're considering a new opportunity. If, you want to get your, if you're being considered for a head of growth position, make sure that they're willing to also give you what you want. And one thing that I've always done, I've always said, I want to have a certain budget and you could find something that doesn't hurt anyone, right? 5% or even 3%, it depends on how big your budgets are give me a budget only for experimentation. And I want to have full control on it. And if I do not make ROI on that budget within a quarter, we'll deduct it off the budget of the next quarter. Something like that. So you can always find ways to to try and get some budget on the side that is just kind of free to play with. But uh, the only way you can really, really sell that is if you're doing it in your, when you're originally taking the position. That's when it's most effective. Mm. Um, so, yes... If uh, you can't get buy-in on something, you know, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. Um, If you can't convince someone of something, maybe go through other avenues, go through other stakeholders, go through other influences or people that they respect or that they listen to a lot uh, that have a lot of influence on them. But is there a risk of not getting recognition for the work? And how do you manage that when you're trying to grow in your career? I think that's a very good question.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Growth has... In the beginning, especially I think both like all of us here have been there even before it was called growth. You just didn't get any budget and you start working as a at a startup as a marketeer. You just I just I started hey, I thought, hey, I've stayed here. let's just start trying stuff and try to connect different tools with each other. That's how I actually started to learn growth because I had no money but I needed to do something. So I that's how I started. But sometimes you just don't get the recognition. That's sadly how it works, especially in growth, especially in marketing. Um, But just think about what's your goal and uh, what you want to achieve. Is the recognition part of that? Then, indeed, you need need to try to fight for it. But what I always did, I just set my goal. And that was I didn't get the recognition always for it, but I did achieve my goal. And then later on, when people start to notice that I was keep reaching my goals, you will get the recognition. But yeah, it's, especially in marketing, the first time you do it, it's even the second or the third time, you don't always get the recognition because there are always other forces that will try to claim it. But that's what I like, especially with growth. It's all data-based. So in the end, you show your uh, recognition by, or you show your
1: worth and then you will get the recognition. yeah. I have, I have sometimes a problem with recognition because you know seeking recognition is, is a tricky scenario. I think you are the only one that can give recognition to yourself, you know, it's, uh, and, and seeking recognition or validation, yeah, of course it, it, it does feel good. but you know if, if you are happy with your work and if you are becoming better and better at what you' are doing, a better professional and, and a better expert, things will come naturally to you because you are focused on your best self on your self-centered, and then things will yeah, it, you, people will notice it. Um, yeah, I don't I'll say in another way, I, I think the, the times that I look more for external validation is when they less happen, you know, and the times I'm more focused on, okay, is this great work? Am I proud with it? Great. Next one. You know, like that's all I need, the external proud. Now, having said this, I do know that it can be sometimes frustrating to have yes. those situations of not having recognition. And uh, I, I think, you know, one of the ways is like, if you are the manager or if you are leading a team, make sure that you do recognize the people that you are leading yeah that, that that you like the higher you go up in the organization the less it's about winning yourself the more, the more is about making other winners so uh, so in that case yeah that that's how you build up recognition to your team um, recognition for yourself yeah it's it's from the, the yeah from the progress that you create and the the pride of seeing a company grow because of what you are bringing and you you're, you're going to have that story with you that you're going to use in the next experience in the next journey and it's going to get better and better the other thing is that you can, can control certain narrative through certain things, which is uh, very fond of having like, high documentation and reporting on the performance. Um, so from the very beginning of building a team, I tried to have, at least when the team became more solid, to have like monthly reporting, quarterly reporting. And I openly share the reporting of the performance with uh, with everyone. Here, CEO, here's the reporting of the quarterly performance of the team on all levels. Here, all the sales guys, access it. team leaders of the company, check it out. And read and then just see everything that happens. And then, it, you know, the more people read is it, it's like, wow, a lot of this is happening in marketing. Great job, guys, et cetera. And then it generates this conversation. So at least you can control what you communicate and share with the organization that is on your control and that might lead to recognition, but you shouldn't do reporting for recognition. Yeah, so that's just, yeah.
2: That's super interesting, especially the, I don't know, especially with stakeholder management, that's the most important thing I learned as a manager in marketing uh, or, or a marketing director, whatever you want to name it, is um, people don't understand marketing. So you have to over-communicate everything. For me, a lot of times things are so logical. And I'm like, yeah, but they know this, right? No, they don't. So I really like the report. So on Slack, we're really learning now to actually just say everything. And once they are telling us we're oversharing fine. But in the beginning, I really a lot of times got the feedback back. You need to talk more about marketing because people just don't understand what you do. And yeah, that's uh, for me. That's been a, a super, uh, yeah, super learning over the past.
0: We call this internal marketing. Yeah, yeah. We call this internal marketing. You need to sell marketing to the rest of the company.
1: Yeah. I think. I think the. I think the one talk I had was, and that, that might be also something that is not easily controlled with recognition is that the fact that we are also living in such a high pressure social atmosphere. Also people like before I was thinking about, yeah, people like on, you know, on social media, look at likes, comments, et cetera, traction. But then what I realized is I didn't notice until like, you know, like maybe two years ago where, where I had an intern at the company, which was doing really well. But one of the times um, she came to, she came to me and said, well, yeah, I'd like to be a bit more, uh, like, I'd like to have more expansion or, or recognition, i will be, be more wide. And I was like, oh, that, that's great. How do, how do you envision that? And I thought she was going to say, I'd like to have more senior leadership recognizing me or looking at the interns. But no, she said, well, I noticed that the amount of emojis and reactions I get on the Slack messages are slightly less or considerably less than other people that are at higher positions. And I'm like, I was like, one, never calculated emojis in my life. That's, uh, that's a first. But secondly, someone went through the work of analyzing the amount of interaction on different levels of the organization. So in one way, I felt, OK, there's a generational gap here for sure, but uh, <laughs> that, I, that I have to take the leap. But it was interesting because it led me to, to think about, is it true that there is a higher reaction if you have certain people sharing or not? And that actually led to a conversation in the company about, you know, if people are actually having ownership and, and, uh, and respect independently of the uh, the the title that they have so uh, so yeah so that that was an interesting thing and then i start having i start reducing the time i was explaining what was happening in marketing on the town halls and i start having different people even interns presenting which was something i was not doing before because you fall on a trap you know i represent marketing hence i present the things and that's that actually helped me change the the my own mindset on on how to and it facilitate stakeholder management because then an intern you know presents on the town hall everyone knows her or him and then he's like oh yeah i know you from the town hall there will be more respect to listen and to understand what they are trying to push forward
0: absolutely and uh, i think uh, of course you should always see, seek your validation from within channel your inner tony robbins or whatever it may be uh, but i do think people do have a bit of social and professional capital right when you're in a yeah. company you've been around for five years people are going to look at you differently than if you've been around for five weeks you know Uh, And then you just kind of earn your keep. I think that's the one thing you got to, you know, even if you're, and this is, I think, the biggest thing. And it's uh, the biggest mistake I see. uh, I see uh, young directors and heads make is you may be the most senior hire in the company, but there's a difference between a hierarchy and a pecking order. And I always found that there are companies that have all kinds of flat hierarchies, non-flat hierarchies, whatever you want, but the pecking order is different. And that's the social and let's say almost political capital you carry within the company. You have, even if you're in the most senior position, you got to start at the bottom, and you got to work. You got to earn the trust of people, and you got to understand that if the product team is skeptical about marketing, why is that? Are they trying to? Maybe they're scared that they're gonna you're going to impede on their territory and take uh, over projects that they're passionate about. Maybe they've had experiences with marketers in the past who are all about aggressive commercial uh, promotion, which then mismanaged expectations of the customers. Try to understand why, and then prioritize your communications. In a way that really helps relieve that uh, that concern, and I think the key to su- being successful at any company, any position, is put your team first, put the company second, put your manager third, and then think about yourself. And you're kind of like your, and then you then put your ego fourth. And I think that's uh, that's always put Maybe your you team take first the and your company second. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And if you can't put it forth, um, um, yeah. Actually, we've talked about kind of. Upward stakeholder management. How do you manage the stakeholders who are above us? But how do you get buy-in from your team on things? Because the worst thing for me always is when I say, I have an idea and I'm really excited. And I say, what do you think? And the team goes like, yeah, that's the worst. Not like, no, no, we don't want this. Not, yeah, this is also just like, yeah, sure. So how do you get buy-in from your team, from people that report to you?
2: I really try... Not to come up with ideas, only to still plant some seeds. But I think what I've learned also by hardship and actually experiencing it, that the best ideas don't come from myself. And the best ideas come from the team. But if I'm just talking, then those ideas will never come up. So I really learned to shut up and just listen. Yeah, to be very honest, because in the beginning, if you just started as a head of marketing or head of growth, you're like full of like... (gasps) I finally have this role. I'm going to kick some ass. I'm just going to do this and do this and do this and do this. And then you just stop listening. And I'm not the expert, right? I become a head of marketing because I am a generalist. And um, you should let the specialists come up with ideas. And then they come to you with bouncing off ideas. And that's where the magic mostly happens. Because then you can use your experience and your knowledge to even elevate the idea. But I don't think head of marketing should come up with ideas.
1: Great points. I think I think you said, it, you said it well, Zelina. I think the only thing I'm, I'm having in my mind now is more, I found that many times people do not think about the timing and the space mm. when they present ideas to their teams because it's, 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 it's your team, yeah? So it's naturally, if you have a great idea, you have something in your mind, you share, why don't you do this? And we sometimes underestimate how tired or how intensive the work is for everyone on the team. So it's hard to also gain your center of your threshold, how much you are doing, and now you still have another idea to add on top of what already is. Most of the times, I would say that I haven't met any marketing team that is not ambitious on the plans of what they set for the year. So, yeah. so chances are uh, already overly ambitious plan, which is hard to achieve, which is already bringing so many results. And every new idea feels like it will be hard to have all that new idea set up. Like, Oof, yeah, that sounds great. Yes. normally the yes means yes I like the idea that yes. I don't want to act on it but you can <laughs> yeah. that, that's normally what it means so the buy-in has to be has to be really ti- well timed and maybe that's a question to ask sometimes on, on the team which is okay is this the right time and if it's not the right time can I create that timing can I ask the manager to help me create the right space and uh, and find those ones you know some managers do have quarterly reviews maybe that's a great one maybe some of them have a B biannual. Um, team building that allows to open up those conversations i think it depends on the scope if the idea is something small that you know that i can run myself with a small team or it really benefits the plan and bring it forward but you know if you recognize it this might be quite a change then just find the right timing and the right space as well of mind to discuss those things you don't want to discuss those things on a monday morning on a traditional sprint review and it's like oh i really don't have the time for that Sometimes on the retrospective, people just want to close the retrospective, and they just want to go home and go for the beer time. And they so it's really hard to find that right space and time. Um, yeah, I don't have a good answer for it, but I know that you know timing and the right yeah, space can really make a difference really? between getting the buy-in or not.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I, I totally agree. We I also have a very overambitious marketing team, which I love, uh, but we always have a hard time finishing the sprints, like 100%, right? And I've been trying to help, trying to get there. But scope creep, interesting project, knowledge. This is like, oh, this is cool. Boom, they go in, and then we don't finish the sprint. And I actually just was during a retro. I said, and I didn't know it was the right time, but I just said, like, guys, I need your help. Uh, I really want to get to a point where we all can finish the sprint at the end of the because it just gives a level of achievement, level of good, a good feeling. And I just try to be vulnerable and say. What can we do to make this work? And those for me actually was again another really big learning that I never had such a good retro afterwards because everybody was so engaged uh, on finding a solution. And now we actually have such good action items that I couldn't have come up with that we're going to try.
0: So yeah. Honesty makes a big difference. And uh, I think putting people in charge of stuff, I think... uh, the, the ideas one I think is really good, because uh, I always give everyone on my team, a, I expect a lot of ownership and uh, to take uh, just basically take charge of what they do. Um, but there was a really good question, a follow-up question on what you said, Jolene, which was uh, how do you encourage people who are more introverted and less reluctant to come forward? And actually, I'm going to combine this with another question because they go kind of hand in hand, which is number one, how do you deal with people who are, let's say, more introverted, maybe uh, more skeptical about their ideas? Mm-hmm. And um, the second one, kind of related is how do you deal with uh, different cultural backgrounds when dealing with stakeholders, both senior or more junior. So let's start with the introverts and then we can go to different cultural backgrounds.
1: Just, uh, as introverts as a manager or as
0: a, on your team. So if you want to push your team to get more ideas out there, I'm sure that you have some team members who are a bit more on the introverted side. Is there anything that you can do to, uh, to encourage them?
1: Well, one thing that I'll say that definitely shouldn't do is to put them on the spot which is a t- the natural tendency of, of, of doing, which is like, I don't speak much, I don't know, X, Y, Z, what is your thoughts? And right, it's a bit of a stereotyping, yeah, but some, a lot of the introvert people I work with, they need time to process and they need their own space and comfort to, build, to bring the, the thought forward. Uh, and sometimes they feel comfortable doing on one-on-one, sometimes in a bigger team, sometimes not. It, it takes some time to, to build a threshold. I found that most of the times what worked well was to, if I know that there is a certain topic, and I know that these the people that are slightly more introverted don't feel so comfortable to talk in large groups because of you know they don't feel comfortable and it's more, more than, than on their rights, I sometimes try to prepare beforehand, have this conversation on one-on-one of them, and actually prepare them for that. Okay, I think this is a great idea that you have. Do you want to bring it forward on a meeting? And if you don't feel comfortable, you know, I can help you out by introducing the first part and say, hey, do you want to suggest a bit more and I can do as a duo, as a backup? Or then I say, have you discussed this idea with anyone else? It's like, I also discussed with this person. Do you want to introduce as a duo? Because sometimes it feels more comfortable if you are doing with a second person and introduce as a dual uh, effort team. So I found that one of the things that comes to my mind with, with people that are more introvert is to... To, fol- to at least get out of the fallacy that the best way to solve them is to call them out or to bring them out to the conversation because that might backfire. Mm-hmm. So maybe just to bring that, that, that different perspective.
2: Um, yeah, I, do, I don't, I do it the same. Yeah, the thing I just, we always do like a brainstorm for a new quarter and every level of uh, uh, within the marketing team can just bring their own ideas. And I also give a lot of ownership with that. So most of the people within a marketing team are responsible for a certain part of that marketing team. So everybody comes up with their own ideas in their own expertise or their own domain. Uh, and then even you allow, especially if you bring it up front and say, we're going to do this next week. Uh, and then during the one-on-one, you actually bring it back up again. Hey, we have the brainstorm next week. What are your thoughts? Then you see that because you give them enough time and space that they will come up with awesome ideas. Most of them. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, and uh, the other question about dealing with stakeholders with from different cultural backgrounds, I think the most important thing here is to just really understand the person. This is, you should be good at this as a marketer anyways. So if you really understand, you know, what they're comfortable with, what they're not comfortable with, you can create processes, you can create situations that are better cater to them. And I think uh, one of the big challenges is if you're very extroverted, this is a mistake I've made a lot in the past as well, and I had to learn which is if you're naturally very extroverted and you're surrounded by extroverts, you can very quickly just start, start seeing introvertedness as a flaw. Um, not consciously, but subconsciously, you start thinking, oh, maybe they're less passionate or maybe they're less engaged. And uh, I think that's a reflex that I had very much in the early days when I first had people on my team who were more introverted. It's really important to know it's a personality difference. It really doesn't. They, have, they might have exactly the same passion, if not more, more commitment, more loyalty, whatever you want. They just channel it differently. And I think if you really understand that, same thing for cultural differences. Understand what are the cultural sensitivities that are at play? How do you create a situation in which those can, can be bridged? I think that's... Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and, and talk about, I think it's also good to talk about it. Actually, a thing one of the team members suggested with us is... We, I did it with a leadership team is to create a sheet of who am I? And everybody in the leadership had to do that. Also how so we're in praise, we're a feedback company. So how do you like to receive your feedback? Because I'm Dutch and I'm very much used to giving feedback in your face, right? And that doesn't work with every culture. Wait, or, the Dutch
0: but, do that? Yeah. I never and noticed. I, no,
2: it's in your face and it's also direct. So, and I noticed that uh, cultures but also personalities differ a lot and some people want to have it written they don't first want to have it written and then a conversation can be held but they don't want to have it in their face because it puts them on the spot so we created a sheet on the leadership team and it was amazing because it helped so much and actually we now want to also do that within our marketing team to just say who am I what do I want what do I need what do I? and that brings up a conversation and a sort of understanding and a context where I think you can work way better together
0: Absolutely. Um, We have one question, which is, can you talk a little bit more about external stakeholder management and how you leverage this magic for external stakeholder buy-in? And then we have another question, which is kind of in line with that, which is how would you approach a B2B growth in a company that sells hardware through a channel of sales partners? Very different question, but we're talking about external stakeholders. But uh, I would focus on the stakeholder question here, which is how would you manage external stakeholders? Ones that you don't see every day, ones that are not in, in your company
2: Literally external stakeholders as in uh, the ones that you need to convince to buy your product. That's the ones, right?
0: Customers and all decision ah, okay. makers. Mm.
1: Uh,
2: for us, it's a very important part at Embrace because uh, we sell to HR, but if HR doesn't get a buy-in from leadership or C-suite, they're not going to pay for a B2B, uh, uh, expensive B2B tool. Uh, so actually what... Uh it's partially comes also, I think this is also a bit of a sales conversation because you need to have sales people really understand that there are different buy-ins and that they need to talk to different levels in order to get it done. I think as a marketing theme, what is it's really important is to really understand the other user or the other, sorry, potential customer. So it's another buyer persona. So a C-suite is another buyer persona. They have different stakes, they have different pains. they have different gains. So... First, understand that persona and then create materials for your salespeople, but for for us, for HR, to give to their uh, C-suite so that they can actually get the uh, buy-in that they need, I think. But mostly it's understanding who they are, what their pains are, because a lot of the times we try to sell the same message we sell to our buyer, to another stakeholder, and that just never
0: goes well. I have a couple of things that I might share that are really relevant that I've just been sent uh, while I was preparing for this, which are really useful to share, and they're not in the public domain, so I can share something there. Um, But before that, are there any resources, books, podcasts, anything that you've read, heard, or seen related to this that you would really recommend? And uh, if not, that's also okay. Um, I'm going to start just... To give you a couple of seconds to think. Uh, one book that I really, really think, I think a lot of stakeholder management comes, relies on trust. and I think a lot of trust relies on ownership. And there is a painfully American book called Extreme Ownership, which uh, depending on your personality might make you cringe at one point or another. However, I think it's a very, very good book to read because it really, it's, uh, it's by uh, two Navy SEALs who compare, uh, who are also uh, leadership consultants, and they compare uh, situations of warfare to situations in business. Oh. And uh, how that differs depending on how the stakes are, because, you know, I might lose 20 grand in revenue versus, you know, three Navy SEALs might die for the first time in 30 years. Very different uh, stakes. Uh, so Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willing. I would really recommend it because that that for me really made me think differently about leadership and uh, taking ownership. So that would be my suggestion. Yeah, for now, the
1: only one comes to my mind recently that was interesting for a mistake, other manager doesn't talk directly about it, but is the one that is solved for Happy.
2: Oh, i Moog, all that. Oh, yeah. it's so good.
1: Solve for Happy is great. Yeah, really good one.
2: Yeah, yeah it's... Um, yeah.
1: It's yeah. not directly in, it related to stakeholder management, but it, it's a nice mindset twist and... Not twist. It's a nice mindset reflection that can also trigger, you know, how do you... What is it? Well, this kind of idea of like, are you solving for X, Y, Z? What are you solving for them? And also, are you solving for their own happiness, which is about, you know, like how you create this environment and maintain them. And, yeah, I just remember this part of, like, the happiness, which is, like, a perception of events, which is minus the expectations. And then you can translate that to the to stakeholder management. Yeah, perceptions of the events, of, of performance, of success, minus the expectations of how it should be behaved. So it, it gave some interesting uh, philosophies uh, of, uh, of uh, food for thought, let's say.
2: Yeah, I did with, yeah, I, I love Mo, I love all those kind of books. I've, I it with Brene like everything of Brene Brown it makes yeah, you very conscious. Leader daring greatly, rising strong. Her podcast is amazing about FFPs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's not really stakeholder management, but I think no. stakeholder management is just conscious leadership because you need to be conscious of yourself and you need to be conscious of others. And of course, some people are manipulative, and that's mm-hmm. not why you do stakeholder management.
1: But no, it's really uh, no, it's phenomenal just finished yesterday night. I finished the last one of her. The, how is it called? The Brave in the Wilderness.
2: Or, uh, oh, yeah. It's
1: a nice... Uh, yeah,
2: Brave in well.
0: Wilderness. Yeah, yeah. Nice. All right. As promised, before we wrap up, um, I'm just going to show you a couple of things. If, you, if, if anyone's interested in them, they can drop me a message and I'll share it with them. It's just I don't actually have this online yet. So these are a couple of things I find really useful. If, you want to, if, you, if you're somebody who likes templates and matrixes, number one... This is called the stakeholder matrix, stakeholder management matrix. Google it. You can find this on Google. Really useful. Basically, it all depends on how influential is the person on the process you're trying to run and how invested are they in the thing you're trying to do. If they're super invested and super powerful, you really need to win them over. So there's basically, do you engage, do you inform, do you monitor, or do you satisfy? And there's also what I found really useful is thinking about stakeholders as visionaries and pace setters because they're very, very different to manage. And uh, if you are dealing with the big picture thinkers, the ones who live in the future... You need to founders. be way more execution focused. Exactly, exactly. A lot of founders are in this one here. And then this one, last one, this one's not uh, findable online, but I will see if I can get him to publish it. It's by Ike Devonines, the, the founder of Level Up Ventures. And uh, he made this really great matrix. I saw it in a talk and I asked him to send it to me. And it was basically, when you're talking about to stakeholders about things and you want to come up with a good way to do it, think about the future aspects, the present aspects and the past aspects. And then the positive and negative. So a positive future is talking about goals and opportunities. Positive current is what is the progress? Positive past is what were the previous wins? Um, negative past is failures and lessons you learned. Negative now is the blockers and negative future is the risks and concerns. And then he recommends to start with future positives and work your way back in a loop. So um, I really found this really useful because I realized that I often do this uh, without really realizing it, the more conscious I am of it, the better. And then finally, yes, ready proposals. I cannot underline this enough. Suggest things that somebody can say yes to. It really, really makes a difference. I think that's, uh, that's, uh, this is also by Ike. So uh, this was just a really quick share uh, because I thought it might be useful, really pertinent to the topic. Is there anything else that you two would like to say? Have a great sunny day. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, me too. Really, thank you for this. I really thank you for this type yeah. of uh, conversation.
0: Yeah. Really great. Yep. Thanks. Okay. Thank- Thank you too for joining. And if any of you want to uh, get any more information, I'm sure they'd be happy uh, for you to reach out to them. Uh, I'm, I haven't asked you guys yet, but uh, I'm just saying it. And uh, and then if not, then uh, you know you don't have to answer the messages. I guess I tend to invite people who are quite helpful and uh, and <laughs> relatively nice people. So uh, thank you all for joining. Cheers.